This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Uh, brand new guest today, super excited. Uh, I'm joined by Leah Karianopoulos. Uh, she's an intensivist at McMaster and also currently completing her Master's of Science. Uh, you might know her from such podcasts as Internet Work. So Leah, super happy to have you here today. Thanks so much for uh, letting me join. Perfect. So as you know, uh, you know we, we talk about two randomized trials. Um, this week, we're focused all on trials relevant to critical care medicine. So you're the ideal guest uh, to have on the show. <laughs> so uh, what article do you want to talk with us uh, about first? Oh, why don't we start with... Um... With the video versus direct laryngoscopy, you can jump into the one I took a look at and go from there. That sounds great. I haven't intubated a patient since uh, <laughs> CC3, uh, anesthesia, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I, I wasn't good at it then. So um, first things first, what was the research question for this study? Yeah, so the question was looking at in critically ill adults, um, does using video laryngoscopy as opposed to direct laryngoscopy increase the likelihood of first pass success with intubation? Um, so video meaning the intubating tool actually has a camera on the end and a screen that everyone who's standing behind it can see as the person intubates versus direct is sort of the traditional metal blade that you think of where you're having to make sure you align all your axes so you can see the vocal cords and intubate from there. Yes, I feel like if I had a video helping me, I would have had a much higher success rate <laughs> than 0%. But uh, anyway, and, and why did this uh, article catch your eye? I mean, so what's interesting is that the data we have right now shows that the majority of intubations worldwide are done using direct, but we've definitely seen an increase in the use of video over time. And you've kind of already alluded to the sentiment of, you know, I, I feel like logically having a camera is going to make life easier. Um, this matters because we know that failure to successfully intubate on the first attempt occurs at about one in three to one in five intubations. So you're in, you're in good company with your uh, success rate um, in the emergent ICU at least. And that's associated with an increased risk of life-threatening complications. So it does increase harm to patients if we're not successful in intubating them on the first attempt. Um, and the guidelines that we have right now say that using either director video is acceptable and the data that we have to date shows kind of a mix of results with respect to which is superior. So this trial is interesting because it's one of the largest uh, to actually look at this question and look in this population of outside the operating room and sort of the eMERGE and ICU conditions, which are often a little bit different or a lot different. Yeah, I'm, I'm sold. So what was the study design? <laughs> Uh, so this is a pragmatic, multi-center, unblinded, for obvious reasons, randomized, controlled, parallel group trial. So it was conducted in 17 different sites across the U.S. in emergency departments and ICUs. Patients were randomly assigned in a one-to-one -one ratio um, with blocks of variable size, which is kind of an interesting methodological thing we can touch on later if we have time. And they were stratified by trial site. Um, patients were, the assignments were placed in sequentially numbered opaque envelopes and concealed until after enrollment. Um, our included patients just had to be 18 years or older and undergoing orotracheal, so not mesotracheal intubation in the um, eMERGE or ICU with the use of a laryngoscope. Um, they excluded patients that were known to be pregnant, patients who were incarcerated, um, or had an immediate need for intubation that was so urgent that it precluded randomization 
or if the person doing the intubation, so the operator, felt that one method over the other on the first attempt was either necessary or contraindicated. So if they said, if you randomize me to direct, I don't care, I'm using video, then that patient was left out of the trial. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And as as um, somebody who's been a part of a couple trials now, the last thing you want are doctors deciding they're going to go rogue, regardless of what the patient got randomized to. <laughs> um, so that yeah. totally makes sense to me. Excluding pregnant patients, I don't understand that one. In, in excluding incarcerated individuals, like, I don't get that. But anywho, you got to make decisions. You have a steering yeah. committee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it caught that caught my eye too. I mean, I wonder if the pregnant patients were higher risk intubation. It's mm. a huge problem, not just in critical care, that we routinely exclude pregnant patients. And I think it's the fear of if you do harm, it's not just to one person, it's to two. Um, and perhaps again, higher risk intubation, maybe the most clinicians would feel video superior. I don't know. Mm. And then they did use a waiver of consent in this model. Um, so they didn't actually get consent from patients. And so maybe that was related to the incarceration piece. I, I found it interesting as well. That's the only thing I can think of sort of off the top of my head, though. Yes, probably the flavor of vulnerable populations um, mm -hmm. that, that, that might have been exactly. weighed in. And then what was the actual primary outcome for this study? The primary outcome was successful intubation of the trachea, not the esophagus, on the first attempt. Um, and they defined it as placeful of an, placement sorry, of an endotracheal tube with a single insertion of a laryngoscope blade and then single insertion of an endotracheal tube, or interestingly, a bougie followed by an endotracheal tube. So if someone went in, took a look, and came back out for whatever reason, then you have not counted as a successful first pass uh, intubation. Um, our secondary outcome was occurrence of severe complications between induction and just two minutes after uh, intubation. So they define this as severe hypoxemia, so a peripheral oxygen side of 80% or less, severe hypotension, so systolic BP of less than 65, new or increased use of vasopressors, cardiac arrest, or death. Okay. And I vaguely remember, but help me fact check this one, Leah, you're concerned after you intubate somebody that you're going to drop their preload or something like that, and then they become hypotensive. Is mm -hmm. that the physiology? Yeah. So you definitely can, depending on their cardiac function and their state coming into it. The method of intubation shouldn't so much be relevant to that, although some would argue that a direct is more provides more stimulation um, mm -hmm. to the patient rather than glide. Um, but then if you consider as well, if they're becoming progressively more hypoxic because you're failing to intubate, the rest of these complications are going to follow <laughs> as well. Or if the, the amount of medications you have to administer is higher, you're more likely to induce hypotension, for example. Cool. That makes sense. Um, so what did the patients look mm -hmm. like who were included in the study? Yeah, overall, the groups were really well balanced. And I think a lot of what you would expect, like kind of reflective of the populations that we we see. Um, the median age was 54 in the video group, 55 in the direct. Only about 35% of patients in the trial were female, which again, for whatever reason, is kind of par for the course with a lot of our research. Um, the um, About 50% were white, 24% were black, and 14% were Hispanic. Uh, relevant to intubation, recognizing that it's not a perfect tool when we talk about the human body, but the BMI was 26 across both groups, so well-balanced there. Um, and the majority of patients, so about 70%, were actually intubated in the ER in both groups. Then the remainder, 30%, were in the ICU. Um, the indications for intubation, intubation sorry, are relevant, and they were similar across both groups. So about 40, 45% were for altered mental status, 
Um, 30% were for acute respiratory failure. And then the rest were a mix of needing an emergency procedure, having cardiac arrest, or just listed as other. Um, the anticipated degree of difficulty going into the intubation was, again, similar across both groups, and the majority of them were ranked as moderate. Okay, that's an interesting stat. Mm -hmm. Anticipated difficulty of intubation. Uh, I'd be fascinated yeah. to see how that varies across, I don't know, years of practice, you know, gender, uh, patient difficulty, time yeah. of day, weekend, evening, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, I'm going on a tangent here, but does this feel like the type <laughs> of patient population that you would see when you're on service? I would say so. I would say the indications, the um, the age, the the active conditions, like they had sepsis or I, I don't see so much trauma in my site, but we do get a lot of traumatic injury and then cardiac arrest and then the Apache too. I, I would say it's a pretty good reflection of the realities of what we see. Um, and you can kind of look at it and go, oh, only about eight and a half to nine and a half percent were anticipated to be difficult. But realistically, if I anticipate a really difficult airway, I'm probably excluded from the study because I'm taking a different approach anyways. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, cool. So what did they find? Uh, so interesting to note, actually with both our trials, I think today is that the trial was stopped early during the interim analysis um, because they had met their pre-step specified stopping criterion. Um, so where the plan was to enroll 2,000 patients, the final study included about 1,420. Um, but within those patients, 600 of the 705, so 85% in the video group, were successfully intubated on the first attempt, while 504 of 712, about 70.8% in the direct group. So pretty substantial difference. This is an absolute risk difference of about 14.3%. Um, and so that takes your confidence interval from 99 to 18.7. Uh, we don't see many studies in critical care or in others that show you that big of a difference, to be honest with you. Um, of note, there seemed to be a greater difference between groups in the operators who had performed fewer intubations. So people that had done less than 25 intubations prior, the difference actually increased to 26.1 percentage points. So that brings us to your point of, you know, if, I, if I'd used video, maybe I would have been successful. You may very well be right. Um, and we saw this difference decrease to about 5.9 points in those that are performed over 100. So it suggests, recognizing this isn't what the trial is powered for, but it kind of suggests that with increased experience, you don't need the assistive tool of the video as much. Yeah, like this is an incredible effect size. I mean, mm -hmm. a 15% improvement? Yeah. Uh, nothing does that in medicine. No, like no. <laughs> a parachute, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Like, this yeah, is incredible. Exactly. Um, now, having said that, every paper has a peer reviewer number two, and everyone yeah. will find limitations and holes. Uh, what were some of the big limitations that you found for this study? I mean, so what's interesting is that there were only about, like, I want to say 327, about 300 unique operators doing the intubation in this study. So despite the volume of patients, you're actually kind of looking at the same group over and over. I want to say the median was each person having done about two intubations, if I remember correctly. So you're effectively analyzing the same group kind of repeatedly, um, which I don't know how much that limits the generalizability. It's still a pretty wide range. And the majority of people that did the intubation were actually trainees, critical care and emergency department um, residents oh, wow. and fellows. Yeah. Uh, resident physicians were 72.8% in the video group and 705 in the direct. So um, 
generalizable in terms of, you know, broad set of skill sets and range of experiences, I would say, but raises the question of, again, in very experienced hands, does this make as big of a difference? Um, I would say that that's probably the biggest, the biggest limitation. Stopping early is always something that we kind of raises people's hackles in terms of concern about how much can we believe the result. It's again, such a big effect size and it was a pre-specified stopping point, which gives me some degree of comfort. Um, but that's always something just to, to consider. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And there's a reason why we make these stopping rules, um, Mm -hmm. you know, before the trial has started or very early on. Um, Mm -hmm. I think in the olden days before clinicaltrials.gov, where no one had to register the trial they were doing, I think a lot of fishy business was going on with early stopping. Mm -hmm. Nowadays I have less concern and I think you hit the nail on the head, like with an effect size that large, uh, number one, it'd be unethical. It'd be objectively unethical to keep going. But number two, you couldn't have enough events that would have pushed your point estimate towards the null effect. Yeah. So, yeah. And then I think, yeah. I guess the one, the one other thing I'll add is that if you really want to get critical about it, first pass intubation is a clinical outcome, not necessarily patient important in the sense that, I mean, as a patient, as long as I am okay and it doesn't result in meaningful harm, am I super fussed if you have to take a second look? Maybe not. Um, especially because the secondary outcome of severe complication had no difference. Um, so you had 21.4% in the video, 20.9% in the direct and safety things like esophageal intubation injury to teeth and aspiration were similar in the two groups. So, I mean, again, it's not powered for those things. And so given you're kind of doing a jump from, well, we know failed first pass first pass intubation has downstream complications. Therefore, this big difference means those patients would have more and we haven't powered it to look at that. Um, Again, given that there's no harm with what seems to be a more successful mechanism, why would I even question it anyways? Mm -hmm. But just something to consider. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. This is, um, it's a surrogate endpoint. It's not a Mm -hmm. clinical endpoint. It's like the hemoglobin A1C of diabetes drugs. Like, okay, great. A1C is a bit lower, but like, was I less likely to have a stroke or a heart attack or die of cardiovascular exactly. causes? So, um, yeah, that, that that's a great point. So what's the take-home point for our listeners? I mean, I think the take-home for me is that especially in inexperienced or relatively inexperienced hands, when you're setting up to intubate a critically ill patient, um, setting up for success with using video laryngoscopy over direct is probably the way to go. Yep, I'm sold. And is this practice changing <laughs> for you? It's not because I am a big fan of video, especially as an internal medicine trained intensivist. Um, Through my training, the teaching I got from a lot of people, especially in anesthesia, was get good at one, get really good at one thing and get comfortable with it. And so I'm a big fan of video um, for the reasons this study supports. I think it brings the temperature down in the room for everyone when everyone can see the view you're getting. so I guess it's not practice changing in that I am already doing it. It is practice supporting. Let's put it that way. Yeah, fair. And although I still locum, uh, I don't have to intubate anyone. There's always an intent- <laughs> intensivist in-house. But if yeah. he or she departs for some reason, at least I know yeah. I am I am much better served with a video a laryngoscopy rather than direct totally. laryngoscopy. Totally. And what's interesting is I think the pandemic changed a lot of this too, and that we all went to direct uh, to video, sorry, first. And so now 
the when we say we're going to intubate, it's the glidescope that gets brought over without anyone saying anything. So it's kind of become ingrained, I think, just by virtue of the last few years of our lives. Oh, good to know. My wife is a veterinarian, so she has to intubate dogs and cats, but I don't <laughs> think they use a video. But but after this, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to ask her and maybe it's a future trial in felines. <laughs> I would love to know. I would love to know what they use. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, we are going to stay within the ICU realm. We'll move away from intubation and towards blood pressure targets, specifically intensive versus conventional blood pressure lowering after endovascular thrombectomy in acute ischemic stroke. Uh, this was published in September of 2023 in JAMA called the Optimal BP Trial. Awesome. Um, so why don't you start with what the question was that they were asking? Does intensive blood pressure management during the first 24 hours after successful reperfusion lead to better clinical outcomes uh, compared with conventional blood pressure management? So this was all within patients who underwent EVT. And when I say intensive, they meant targeting a systolic less than 140 systolic as opposed to conventional, where they let it ride between 140 and 180 systolic. Awesome. Um, and so why do, we, why do we care? Like, why choose this trial? What caught your eye? So a quick reminder, EVT has incredible outcomes for patients who present within 24 hours of a large vessel occlusion. Should that be M1 branch occlusion? Or most recently, from trials published in the past six months, um, basilar thrombus like very large effect sizes, almost as large as we saw in the video laryngoscopy study, now that mm. I think about it, but with hard clinical endpoints. And based on expert opinion, we're supposed to target a blood pressure, you know, less than 180 on 105. But like most things in medicine, we're kind of making it up, right? We're kind of making it up because of course, EVT is something that's pretty new still. There's a lot of observational data that shows higher blood pressure leads to worse outcomes. But as somebody who does a lot of observational data, mm -hmm. they're just so fraught with selection bias. So two small trials showing no clear signal. And this is why this study in particular caught my eye. Yeah, you got me convinced. Um, so what was the, what was the design? So multi-center, randomized, open-label, but blinded endpoint clinical trials at 19 centers in South Korea. Uh, patients were randomized one-to-one -one and done so within two hours of reperfusion and stratified by NIH score, as mentioned, either to intensive, less than 140 systolic or conventional, 140 to 180. As we break down the patient population, we'll walk through the good old PICO mnemonic. So mm -hmm. population, adults aged 20 and up, successful EVT uh, for ischemic stro stroke due to large vessel occlusion, and they had high blood pressure. Um, exclusion, any contraindication to using antihypertensive meds, if they had a symptomatic ICH, if they had a high level of disability even before the stroke, or if they had, quote, serious medical or surgical illness, even after digging through the appendix, I have no clue what this means, um, <laughs> but regardless, they were excluded. Um, intervention was a blood pressure targeting less than 140. They used nicardipine. And I can think of all of the times I've used nicardipine, which is zero. Um, so I'll be <laughs> yeah. curious to hear if this is a drug that you um, typically reach to. Um, mm -hmm. So within one hour of randomization, the primary outcome was good functional outcome. 
And this is a very common composite score that we see, or I guess really it's an ordinal scale, but who cares? Um, so, so rank in zero to two means they're functionally independent. Rank in three to six means they have some level of dependence and a ranking of six is death. And the timeline was up to 90 days. And you're right, just like your study, this one also ended early. Mm -hmm. um, awesome. So you kind of mentioned the primary outcome already. Were there secondary outcomes worth, uh, worth commenting on with this one as well? Oh yeah, with all good trialists, the, <laughs> there, there's no stopping from tons of secondary outcomes. So <laughs> most of them were related to things like ICH, death, components of that ordinal scale, um, mm -hmm. rates of malignant cerebral edema, uh, as well as some other measures. Great. Um, all right. So what did the patients look like after all this? So overall, um, 1,600 were approached. Uh, 300 were included, and their goal up front was to include twice as many. The average age was 73 years, 40% uh, were women, 80% had high blood pressure, 50% had AFib. In terms of the etiology of the stroke, 50% uh, were felt to be cardioembolic and 25% large vessel disease. Um, the time from stroke onset to puncture was six hours, which is um, pretty impressive for EVT. Mm -hmm. And then the time from stroke onset to randomization was eight hours, which is very impressive. Mm -hmm. um the piece that caught my eye, and I don't know if you have thoughts on it, was the intravenous um, TPA use between the two groups. It looks like they've got about 28.4 in the intensive, 36.7 in the conventional. It's actually lower than I expected. I don't know what you think about it. Yeah, so um, I... I do still, when I do my locums up north, I'm still the sort of quote unquote stroke neurologist. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it reflects the population where they live relative to the hospital. How quickly can you get in? Mm -hmm. The sort of rates of 30% to 40%, those are in keeping with some of the other EVT trials that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Like you, I've also been surprised. That imbalance, um, I missed that. So well done that you caught it. It likely <laughs> represents the fact that in a relatively small randomized trial, you will have variables that are not balanced just due to chance yeah. alone. Absolutely. That makes sense. Um, so what, what did they find? Yeah. So again, so the trial ended early. Um, this time it ended early, not because it was so amazing, uh, quite the opposite. <laughs> so it, it ended early due to clear safety concerns and a 99% probability that intensive management was going to be futile. So um, the primary outcome of good functional independence occurred in 39% in the intensive arm compared to 54% in the conventional arm. Uh, that's a 15, 1.5% absolute risk increase, increase with intensive management. Yeah. Whoops. Bad idea. Um, yeah. And then I wondered, well, like what blood pressure did they achieve? So within mm -hmm. 24 hours on average in the intensive arm, the blood pressure was 129 systolic. Mm -hmm. And in the conventional arm, it was 138. And mm -hmm. you'd expect it to be even higher in the conventional arm. But like they said, for some people, like their blood pressure did what it did post-stroke. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you're going to give somebody pressors to make sure it's in that 140 yeah. to 180 uh, range. Mm -hmm. that, that would be a bad idea. Um, in terms of safety <laughs> outcomes, similar rates of intracranial hemorrhage between the two group, similar risk of death between the two groups. And then the secondary outcome, 
I think if anything, this helps to identify the maybe mechanism. So they found much Mm -hmm. higher rates of malignant cerebral edema in the Mm -hmm. intensive management group. So perhaps that is the mechanism for why they saw such worse functional outcomes for patients with Mm -hmm. intensive management. I find it so incredible that it doesn't, you hear about the blood pressure difference between the two groups and you kind of go, okay, not, not that big. And so to see such a difference in the outcome is, is pretty telling and kind of wild. Yeah. And the other thing that's really tricky is that whenever you're interpreting means or medians, the difference between the two can often underestimate the true difference. Mm-hmm. All you need is a, a couple of individuals, especially in the mm-hmm. lower arm where those bad events occurred to really push the effect estimate, even though it seems in the aggregate, hey, that's only nine millimeters of mercury worse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I guess that leads us kind of nicely into what are the limitations of the study and what, what flags for you? Yeah, it's smaller than hoped, um, but of course, this is why we have stopping rules, and it would clearly be unethical to keep harming individuals when you saw very early a large effect size in the wrong direction. And then whenever we have an unblinded trial, of course, randomization is incredible at removing selection bias. Mm -hmm. But if your trial isn't blinded, your outcome assessment can be biased. So Mm -hmm. that's always a possibility. In this case, um, they did have blinded outcome assessment, which is good, but not perfect. So it's really just small limitations here. Yeah, fair enough. Um, And so as you see it, what are the takeaways in light of all that? I think post-stroke, especially for these individuals who've gotten an EVT, these patients are, of course, managed by the intensivists. So as the GIM doc, I I probably won't be part of the picture, but if I were, I would say, hey, you know, let grandma ride high, okay? Do not try to um, do not try to bring down grandma's blood pressure, especially yeah. not with nicardipine. But what do you think as the card carrying intensivist? I mean, my general approach, like residents that work with me get tired of hearing it, but my general approach is a lot of like do as much nothing as possible and the whole lot of like don't just sit there, do nothing. And I really think our job is to kind of help where we can and stay out of the way where we're not certain we're helping. And so my takeaway from this was looking at it and seeing that you're right. Like, it's not like we were forcing the blood pressure up in the conventional therapy group to bring it up higher. And that's why we saw a benefit, I think, to a certain extent, recognizing there's pathophysiology at play here when someone's had a stroke. But by and large, the brain is hopefully going to do what it needs to do to protect itself. And so giving it the space to do that instead of trying to force it along may very well be the right answer after a certain point. Yeah, I agree. And I think like even the sort of 180 target, like that's kind of made up too. And I've always wondered Mm -hmm. after I've given somebody TPA, like why am I targeting 180? And (laughs) maybe instead the brain and thousands of years of evolution, like they know what to do yeah. <laughs> if yeah. a bad event has occurred. <laughs> a bit <but>. of credit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They survived millennia. Yeah. They outlived the dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, but anyway, so yeah, that that's a take home point from, from my end. And I think certainly when I'm up in the Sioux, if somebody needs an EVT, we're sort of waving goodbye not to heaven, yeah. um, just to Toronto um, <laughs> yeah, or another yeah. center. 
um, <laughs> where the EVT will get done. But this really caught my eye because I feel like um, yeah. it's just one of those, another trial, which sort of, as you've already nicely articulated, sort of shows, hey, maybe just sit on your hands and let mm -hmm. the body do its thing. That might be the right approach in this, this scenario. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we've kind of already said it, but I'll get you to outline it clearly in terms of uh, whether this is practice changing or not for you. Yeah, I think the spirit of it is practice changing uh, in general. Uh, it would be great to chat with other intensivists to see what their current approach is. Mm -hmm. I would guess most intensivists are sort of letting things ride up to 180. Um, but maybe it's more important to ask you, is this practice changing or were you already kind of doing this, letting the blood pressure ride up to 180 post EVT? Yeah. I mean, so our center doesn't get the EVT patients truthfully, um, in where at some of the other hospitals I trained at, they would actually even go to a neuro step down rather than direct to our ICU. So we'd rarely see them as like non neuro intensivists. But from what I was witnessing when I was training, I think most people do let them ride up to 180. They, to your point about, well, why 180? I think everyone starts to get squirrely when you hit 200. And so sometimes it's as much about treating our blood pressure as it is theirs. But um, yeah, I think in general, the the practice right now is that we we kind of tolerate up to that up to that level. Awesome. All right, Leah. Well, the articles are done. Um, mm -hmm. On the show, we talk about good stuff, some good stuff that caught our eye. Any good stuff that caught your eye recently that you want to share with the listeners? Oh my goodness. It's a bit of a rough week for good stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It truly is. I don't know when, we never know when this is going to get aired. You're for really? all we know, it'll get aired like Christmas day and they're like, what do you mean? But what you're right. You the world about? is- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the world's kind of fallen apart on this October 11th, 2023. Yeah. Um, but in the interests of, I think someone actually brought it up on the last episode of yours I listened to, but um, I am in the cohort um, as we all graduate residency. It's been the year of the wedding. And I saw recently some discussion about how my generation right now has like the best span of music covered and how it makes for an absolutely fantastic time. If you look through like the era of the boy bands to the early pop to the R&B of the early 2000s. So it's just something that continues to bring me joy is knowing that we'll always have that. <laughs> Nice. Good music. That's always, that's always good stuff for sure. I don't think I have anything as exciting and instead it's a little bit of a plug for, for some of the work that my lab is doing. This thing called trial files where we've created this program monitors medline for RCTs relevant to the internist. We patch into chat GPT. It spits out a three sentence summary and we push it out as a newsletter uh, soon, Leah, we will be creating so a trial cool. files for in, for intensivists. So Love that. Um, the, the the big question is always, you know, what color do you pick for the logo? So <laughs> we, we have one for nephrology soon, and it's going to be yellow. Mm -hmm. Naturally, um, G, yeah, yeah. GI didn't want brown. They took a <laughs> they took offense to that. They don't want to just be associated with feces. So we gave it like a pinkish color, like a right. healthy GI lumen. But but I think lumen, for yeah. ICU, yeah, I think I think for ICU it might be like 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 black, you know, and maybe maybe it's like a little bit like a Grim Reaper hat on top of the <laughs> trial files guy. But I I don't know if you want to weigh in on that. 
Oh man. I mean, yeah, that does feel like our reality. A lot of the time I like to think that we, uh, we do that with kindness and care. So maybe a smiling Grim Reaper would, uh, would be the right play. Okay. I'll, I'll run that by uh cat and Brian and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to you. I look but, forward uh, to anyway, yeah, for sure. Anyway, Leah, a ton of fun. Thanks so much for recording this evening. And obviously, John and I are both huge fans of internet work and, and the incredible um, podcast material that, that you and your team are pumping out. So we'll include a link to uh, internet work in our show notes. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. We, uh, we're huge fans of you guys. So it's, it's cool getting to, to share this. Awesome. Thank you so much, Leah. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.